Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Nancy, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. It's been a little while, but the 60th anniversary, it's here. I'm sure everyone's aware of it. I'm just curious why you're not attending. Um, I am, uh, let's see, this is the 60th anniversary and I can no longer travel. So I can't head out to Dallas. I, I'm I, I'm really disappointed because it is the 60th and there'll be a lot of people there that you could connect with in that. And uh, because doing it, you know, over Zooms and telephone calls and email, that's one way of doing it. But seeing people in per- person makes another kind of a connection with it. Are you uh, are you surprised the 60th came? I mean, it came quick for a lot of people. I've been getting that reaction that the 60th is already here. And I've only been interested in the Kennedy assassination for two years once I started realizing all the stuff that was going on in it. And I mean, it's, yeah, the 60th is a long time for a lot of these people who haven't really gotten the full truth that they, that I guess that they deserve. Right. I think that, um, I, I don't know that it came quickly. I've been, uh, I took some time off. Uh, after I wrote my book on George de Morinchild in 2013. And then uh, I got back into it about five years ago. Uh, so my my uh, my story and the story for anyone who starts looking into this is that it's a black hole. And so you, you, know, you may go away from it for a while, but that gravity will start to pull you back into it again. You'll read about a new release or you'll hear about a new book and it'll be just enough to make you want to go for it again and try to figure out what's going on. Because I think that um, from the Warren Commission, uh, to go back just a little bit to that, is um, just reading the Warren Commission report and the 26 volumes of evidence and exhibits that they published, you can deduce from just that that the official version is not accurate. So you don't need to do years of digging, much of interviewing, et cetera, to prove very definitively that the single bullet theory and the lone gunman theory is wrong. What we've been doing all of this time is trying to figure out what did happen, right? So it's um, that's the puzzle we're trying to put together. The puzzle of the Warren Commission is not that mysterious anymore. You know, we I think we've come to the conclusion that it was a fait accompli, right? The memo that went out on uh, a couple days after from the um, uh, Assistant Attorney General Katzenbach that we must uh, identify that Oswald did it that he did it alone. There's no other Confederates at large. And that's basically marching orders and they went forward. And so they extracted evidence to support that. So that's fine. That's how they did it. That was their approach. But there was a ton that they didn't know about. And even when they published, three of the commissioners disagreed with the single bullet theory and had problems with it. And even Governor Connolly said, I wasn't hit by the same bullet. So um, those things absolutely prove the fallacy of the conclusions that were, were given by the Warren Commission. And so we have been for 60 years, well, I would say maybe 55 years, trying to figure out what did happen. And you know, what's interesting is the first couple of books that came out, the, the serious critical books uh, that weren't wacko, uh, Mark Lane's Rush to Judgment and uh, Sylvia Marr's Accessories After the Fact. You've probably read both of those by now. Um, most of what they say still holds up. Even after we've had thousands of documents released, went through, plowed through those 26 volumes, most of that still holds up in terms of what they were saying were issues and problems with um, uh, the, the case uh, that was supposedly solved. Uh, within 36 hours. Um, so it's uh, this is kind of hard to explain to people that we know it's not right, and yet we still can't tell you the definitive alternate of what really did happen because we have so many pieces of evidence. We have so many different paths, and we've been blocked in so many ways, whether it's the CIA or the FBI or the Dallas police or the intelligence intelligence agencies, all these places closed ranks after that weekend. 
and uh, were trying to cover their tracks, were trying to, even if they were innocent, they were trying to cover their tracks. Because, I mean, think about it. The Secret Service, they failed their key mission that day. They lost their president. So it's uh, it's been a puzzle. We don't have all the pieces, but boy, we're getting close with it. But can you think of one other murder case, let alone three murder cases, where a number of people have come forward and confessed and there have been no consequences to that? I, I, can't, I can't think of one in history. Okay, we, we, we have a number of people, ex-CIA agents, uh, loonies and, and, and the sort. Uh, and we have a lot of people, you know, guns for hire, mercenaries, mafia people who have come forward and said, yes, I participated. And here's what my part of the process was. And there's no consequences to it. You know, we had one uh, uh, litigation and that was in New Orleans. But those people hadn't confessed. They he had to go out. Garrison had to go out and charge them. So uh, it's kind of interesting about this case that we we would be that way as a country, as a nation, and say that we don't want to pursue when these people come forward uh, through the courts and find out what the bottom line is. Well, what's your thoughts on the Warren Commission when it comes to things that obviously they didn't do that would have been done in a proper investigation. I think they completed their task, which was based on the evidence that Oswald was the lone assassin, all their evidence. They only looked at that evidence. They didn't look at how the public sees the Warren Commission as an investigation into the president's death. In my opinion, an area that gets a little less research is the HSCA. I guess because a lot of people have triumph or qualms with it. I think it was important only because they actually looked at some of those, you know, did Marcelo do it? Did Hoffa do it? Well, he had the motive and the means. And like they all they looked at that at least. I don't think that any of them did it, but I think that's important to even have that because the Warren Commission did not investigate any of that. And I think even the one of the panels that came out later talked about how Hoover considered himself an adversary of the Warren Commission. They printed that. That's in a government document. So there you go, right there. And we know the FBI and CIA withheld information from the Warren Commission. Gerald Ford was on there moving a back wound up to the back of the neck. Like there's unethical things going on there where you just explain it to people. I was trying to tell somebody at work and they're like, that doesn't sound real. I was like, here's a computer in front of us. Google it. And they Googled it. Bam. It popped all up. He's like, oh my God, this happened. I was like, yeah. Yeah, it does. And you know, the, um, a lot of the staff members that were on the Warren commission, the rank and file, uh, they were borrowed from other agencies. So they were told, okay, you're going to be over there for two or three months, and then you're going to come back home to uh, whatever department you were in, defense or agriculture, whatever you were doing before in an administrative function, that's what you're going to come back to. So you had those people. The staff attorneys that they hired weren't that familiar with the federal bureaucracy. So when they got uh, doors slammed in their faces, uh, not overtly, but covertly, they, they didn't have a clue of what was happening. And when they did try to pursue something, then Warren shut it down very quickly. And then, like you mentioned, Ford, he was informing to Hoover every step of the way that they were going along um, with the investigation. <clears throat> I won't really, you know, I don't like the word investigation because it wasn't a serious investigation. It was, we have the man who... Um, we can uh, we can we can clean up three murders <laughs> by naming him as the lone assassin. So we can clean up the Kennedy uh, murder, um, the Tippett murder, and then uh, because he's just a lone nut, we can clean up Ruby killing him. So three murders solved, you know, Bing Bang um, over the weekend. You know, last week there was an accident um, on one of the big highways in California. And uh, I think four or five vehicles were involved, and it was a big truck that had flipped over. And they had the transportation board out there because a train on a railing side was involved somehow. And the woman said, you know, it's going to take us at least a year to figure out what happened. And I thought, this is a car accident, okay? Nobody's killed, and they're going to take a year to figure that one out. But no, we didn't, we didn't have to do that. We, we knew three murders. 
and, and we, we knew exactly what happened and they were going to document it and try to support it. So instead of, of, of investigating all the um, open issues, what they did was they did diversionary tactics. So you can look at people like the DeMoran Shields and the Paines and look at the sizable amount of documentation of interviews and research and background checks that they did on, on those four people, Michael and Ruth Payne and George and Jean de Morenschild. And it's, it's, it's thousands of pages, it's thousands of questions. And yet uh, the questioning to Texas School Book Depository employees, very minimal, very focused. Uh, so many people that I talked to over the years, I say, why didn't you tell? Why didn't you tell the authorities? Why didn't you tell them this or that, that you're telling me now? They didn't ask. They didn't ask. And if you tried to talk about something that was off of their questioning, they go off the record and tell you to stay on track, stay, stay focused on it. They, they didn't want to hear the other stuff, but they gave the, you know, they had the uh, idea of um, quant quantity versus quality. If we throw enough spaghetti on the wall, we'll see what sticks and that can uh, show Oswald as a, as a lone nut. And then- um, The public doesn't read anyway. Yeah. And, and then you have Marina, who, you know, never met a statement she didn't like. Uh, I understand she was scared she was going to get deported. She had kids to take care of. A lot of issues like that. But even still, uh, a lot of her testimony was very damning to Oswald. And it turned out to be not true. So she was being pressured uh, and coerced into saying certain things. And she, she could read between the lines on these questions that they were asking her. Uh, and then there's all the issue about the interpretation with her too. Did she really know what she was answering based on people interpreting for her? I mean, she wasn't stupid. She knew some English. I mean, it was very, very rough, but she definitely could understand what was going on in the situation. She's getting a lot of money funded for it too. My issue, and it's where I kind of, would say argue with most researchers, but I've gotten into debates about DeMorne Shields' testimony is the only one that paints Oswald as a good guy. To be 100% honest, he was the one that said, no, Marina berated him in public and made him feel less of a man. Like that comes out of nobody else's testimony. So if you're trying to paint the guy as a wife beater, which I'm sure they both beat each other back and forth, but it it did not fit the Warren Commission's already submitted evidence and based on all the other interviews from Ruth Payne or whoever of who Lee Oswald was. But the Warren Shields, they like it the opposite. It, they actually said he was a good guy, a nice guy, didn't talk that much. And it was just like, this isn't why would you include it if it doesn't fit everything else you have? It's just a random anomaly, which you get into the whole strangleholds in the assassination case, which is like seems like dead ends. Even Tippett's murder is confusing it's trying to understand based on all the witnesses and all the random occurrences that happened around that but yeah demorne shield i just i i'm probably in the same boat with you on him is i don't think he was a cia person like everyone says but his testimony is like pretty revealing of like okay maybe oswald wasn't just a horrible human being like the warren commission says yeah you know uh there's certain things that we know that have been uh promoted uh, as characteristic of him that we know aren't true. He wasn't illiterate. He was dyslexic. And the fact that he had as much knowledge as he had and had read as much as he had in both English and Russian is rather amazing, even if someone didn't have that uh, that uh, uh, handicap. Uh, so, so that's one thing of trying to paint him as, you know, a, a little hillbilly uh, that didn't know much or anything, you know. And also, he wasn't a loner that kept to himself. He, you know, when you talk, when you read those testimonies of the Dallas Russians, if you were more of the left-leaning side of that group, of which there were few, then you got the total uh, attention of him. And he was happy to to tell you all about his thinking and how he thought the rule, the world should be run, uh, and and what the best systems were, et cetera, and that. Um, and he 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 waffled over his family responsibilities. You have these contradictions where, boy, he really did love his children. You should have seen him playing with those kids out in the front yard of Ruth Payne's house. And uh, you could get him to talk about the kids all the time. Well, you know, um, Buell Frazier is the only person that said that. 
that said that uh, you could get him to talk about the kids all the time. Those other people, George, George or Jean never said that, that he would always talk about the kids. So um, different perspectives because people see him in different environments. And I think a lot of this comes back to what's really been studying hard over the last 10 to 15 years is Oswald's potential intelligence background. And so was he on assignment in Dallas and New Orleans doing all of these interactions with groups that were seemingly in competition with each other? Was he for the for Fair Play for Cuba with the um, pro-Castro people? Or was he with the DRE and the anti-Castro uh, exiles and the right wing? Was he with the Birchers or was he with the ACLU? So he was infiltrating, is a word that you could use, these different groups to report back on what their activities were. So I think that that is very fertile grounds for people. And people like John Newman is probably one of the best versed on the intelligence connections of, um, of Oswald and why we should be thinking about him in those terms. And uh, I think that that is going to lead us into a lot of information and areas that uh, have been closed to us in the past. Do you think Oswald was CIA or FBI? I think he was both. I do too. But I think it's when John Fain interviewed him for two hours in his car. Um, that's when he became an FBI agent. Because if you look at the testimony of what they talked about, he said even Oswald wasn't violent or I wouldn't have ended the investigation. I would have stayed on it and I wouldn't have retired. But he talked about being concerned about Marina and her KGB connections. And I'm just like, if you, you get look at when he paid his loan back after that, he's paying in three payments of one hundred dollars or two hundred dollars. And I go, he accepted giving a little bit of information, not being a spy. I'm, it might have led into something else, but it was really just about monitoring mail and anything that would be coming in that would be for Marina. So nothing could have came in, whatever. It's He still gets paid for doing whatever he's going to do. And then I think it was the fair play for Cuba stuff that started coming up later was all FBI tactics. That's COINTELPRO stuff. Right. And then, um, and yet in New Orleans, after he gets arrested for the street scuffle, right? Handing out the leaflets for FBCC. Who does he call? An FBI agent. It will request for one. Right. And and then he has an, 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 an interview with, with this agent. So he's, you know, there's so many markers in his history. Radar operator in Atsugi, uh, um, leaving early defecting to Russia, how he got into Russia, how he, what he did in Russia. Uh, we've gotten some of those KGB files, but, you know, Norman Mailer did a lot of interviews with people that Oswald interacted with in Russia and got a lot of information, which was great. Um, and, uh, and so we, we've, we've started to fill in more of the, the picture. Could he speak Russian well, or couldn't he? Because you've got people in the Soviet Union at that time saying, no, he, he, he didn't speak very good Russian. And there's been a couple books out in the, in the last year or two. Uh, one is by um, uh, Peter Gregory, Paul Gregory, the son of the oil engineer that gave uh, Oswald his letter of recommendation for speaking Russian when he came back in 62. His son was going to college in Oklahoma, and he was very interested in Russian. And he actually did a little bit of tutoring for Marina. But he there was a period of two to three months in the summer of 62, a year before the assassination, where he spent a lot of time with them. And so he's just written a book in the last year or so that, that helps you understand a little bit more about the personality of Oswald and Marina uh, for that first um six months after they came back uh, into the United States from the Soviet Union. So it's uh, these people keep coming out of the woodwork, right? Well, wish you'd written that 30 years ago. Wish you'd what, written it, you know, 20 years ago. What are your thoughts on uh, Paul Landis? 
Well, that that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, um, I don't necessarily buy it. I think he said it before in the past about uh, coming across a bullet in the seat, but I don't think he's ever gone as far as saying he was the one that placed it on the stretcher. Yeah, I I don't know. Um, it's um, when you get this drip 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 from people, uh, it's hard to um, it takes. I don't think we should rush to judgment in saying yay or nay you just had to throw that in there didn't you yeah i'm good what can i tell you <laughs> um you've got to really think it through and what the implications of it are what the potential motivations are how does it uh uh align with everything else other secret service people who were there and should have seen should have known how does that all fit in together and you know I, i'm sure vince palomara He's written an initial piece on it, uh, but I'm sure he's going to do more in depth on it. Uh, and he he's the expert on uh, uh, Secret Service. Well, I'm I think I've learned a lot from very first time we've ever talked to the second time we've talked to where we're at I'm at now. But can I ask you about the anomalies of the assassination? Because there's things I don't understand on certain aspects. Pull pull a blood in Dealey Plaza. You ever hear about that one? Yes. Is that so, I've only found Kali's testimony or whoever that was that said that he tasted it or something like that. And an FBI agent um, came by, took his camera and his photos and never saw him again. I've seen that transcript or whatever that in a, whatever it is. But I just don't I've seen the pictures, too. But I think they called it a red snow cone or something. But then you have Bertha Lozano, who talked about an, a Mr. X coming in, who was getting treated for an injury. Um, the same time Kennedy was rushed in. So I'm trying not to connect the two, but also connecting the two. So it's like, I don't know if there was someone. And then even the reports from Walter Cronkite and others that said a Secret Service agent was shot in Dealey Plaza, like the hour of the when the shooting happened. Right. Um, so I've heard that pool of blood called um, Red Pop, Kool-Aid, right? I mean, a variety, like just like you described. Uh, and there was a couple, a young couple that were, sitting in that pergola eating their lunch at the time of the motorcade and that uh when it happened uh the fella dropped his soda bottle and that that's what made this red mark on the on the pavement up there um kind of uh up from the street um but i don't know i don't know the reality of that because there's uh because people didn't do neither the dallas police nor the Warren Commission did contemporaneous investigation at the time. I mean, now forget it about trying to find out the the truth about that. Uh, there's no records in the Secret Service that show an individual getting wounded that day. Okay, and up there where that pool of blood was, there was no Secret Service person assigned. Doesn't mean there wasn't one there, but there was none in the official records about where they were supposed to be that day. So, so that one, I don't, I don't know. There's a lot of conspiracies, and I mean, do you feel like a lot of the conspiracies get bred because of the fact there was not investigative efforts to pursue any of those links or any of those weird anomalies that come out during the assassination? Like the Secret Service member on the knoll, they investigated. All they said was there was not any Secret Service based on the Secret Service's reports that nobody was up on that knoll at that time. And then they added the possibility that could be a CIA person, like I was saying, and their charter says they can offer members to the Secret Service to, to make sure they can fulfill their duty properly. But nothing else, just a small one paragraph thing. That's it. Just everything else is fit. We have Jack Ruby's mother's dental records in the freaking thing but no they just like nope just this little small section there but do you think a lot of these conspiracies rise out of the fact that you have a lot of people trying to figure out in their mind how it happened and that easily okay. easily um robbie because people people have biases right their own personal bias that they bring to anything that happens uh, or they're interested in life and if there's one aspect of the assassination event that piques their interest uh, and they start to dig into it or just want to find out more about it. They Google it on the internet and they find all these conflicting um, uh, concepts about the, the, the portion of the event that they're talking about. And they, um, 
And, and so you go, but it doesn't really answer my question. It doesn't really give me a definitive answer, uh, especially now where there's so much disinformation readily at hand to people. It, it can't, it can't, it absolutely has to foster your wildest beliefs, right? Um, you know, I, I'm sick to death of hearing about Occam's razor, okay? Because it's always kind of misquoted is that the simplest answer is the right one. You know, that's not what Occam's razor says at all. And so, um, you know, intellectuals use that and throw that back as if they have some secret understanding uh, of how logic should work, et cetera. And, you know, the average person um, spends their day trying to figure out how to pay their mortgage, how to get food on the table, how to pay for gas, how to keep their relationships and their family going, et cetera. And to ask them to go and think beyond that today in 2023, when we've got this war in Gaza, We've got the war in Ukraine. We've got this dissension in Congress where we're seeing little bits of starting to work together. And it's like, wow, if you do that, then you get ousted. Don't do that, <laughs> right? Keep partisan. So you've got all of that in front of people besides those daily things that they need to do to keep alive and keep their spirit going. It's a lot to ask of people. It's a lot to ask of the people that have given so much of their time, money, and resources over the last 60 years into researching this because the government did such a poor job. And you had mentioned the HSCA before, and yes, they did get into a lot, but in the end, they were no better than the Warren Commission and their methodology because the final chairman there was someone who was pro the theory that the mafia did it. And so he was hell bent on fostering that evidence and not giving the time or resources to be able to go after other things do you and think do those we, researches. Do you think we would have got a better conclusion from the HSCA if Richard Sprague was involved still? Oh, absolutely. If it had been properly funded, but when you have an investigation that is funded year by year, you have agencies like the FBI and the CIA that will just outweigh you, okay? I'm not going to worry about what you're asking me for now because in another three months, you're going to have to go to Congress and ask for new funding. <laughs> Chances are you're not going to get it. So I'm, I'm not going to, I'm just going to, you know, do the paper shuffle and the paper chase with you. Uh, and, and that's what happened with the HSCA too. You know, I talked to one of the Leslie Whistleman who had done a lot of, research on the CIA records. And she talked so almost sadly when I talked to her in the 90s about um, going into the little room and they would give you, I mean, it was like a six foot by seven foot room. And then walk in and in front of you, there's a little wooden shelf, which is a desk. And then they give you a chair that doesn't work. Okay, one leg falls off or the wheel falls off and that. So you're not comfortable sitting there going through documents. You can take notes, but you can't take the notes out of the place. You have to leave the notes there and become part of the file. So she talked, it, 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 she followed, um, can't think of his name, the head of the SCA, HSCA now. Blakey. Um, Blakey, thank you. She followed him. He recruited her. Um, out of college as one of his, his law students, uh, as he did several others. And she went in with just great expectations. Uh, Cyril Brady, I mean, there, there's a whole list of those um, those people that, that followed him there, thinking that they were going to change the world. They were going to do something meaningful, only to find that he had his own idea about what the uh, results should look like. Do you believe that any investigation that came later, whether it was the Rockefeller Commission or the Clark panel, actually had any weight to some of their investigative efforts? Or do you think a lot of it was more concerned with other factors? I think every investigation adds more to the historical record. Does it mean that their conclusions necessarily were correct or moved anything forward? But every little piece of information that we could get I mean, you know, the, AA, the AARB 
after uh, the 92 Records Act. Uh, create that being created and going forward. Those are very conservative uh, uh, members that were leading that effort, but they did do an outreach to researchers for what should we be looking for? Where are places that we haven't thought about where data might be? And uh, and so they 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 did some listening to that and they let us write letters to them. Uh, and they responded back to us. And so that that was all positive and, and the thousands of documents. But, you know, if you hadn't saw, had someone working there like Doug Horn to bird dog that medical evidence from the Parkland doctors and the Bethesda doctors and the people that worked there that weren't doctors, but took photo labs, uh, lab photos, x-rays, uh, carried the casket in, carried the casket out, took the body out of the casket, et cetera. If you hadn't had him with a lot of help from David Lifton, who had done a lot of work uh, in the 80s, 70s and 80s, um, we wouldn't have all that medical evidence that's new about um, making the charts up for the Warren Commission on the autopsy results. Uh, and that there's two sets of those for what, two different audiences? So why is nothing ever simple in this investigation? Why are there always um, two or three versions of stuff? The the handwritten letter uh, that Oswald supposedly wrote, another anomaly, uh, when he was at Ruth Payne's house and used her typewriter to uh, type up and send to the Russian embassy in D.C. around November 9th, just a few weeks before the assassination. Why is there so much mystery around that? We have a couple of different versions from Ruth Payne where she was copying that, that letter uh, and they're slightly different. And why did she make two copies? Okay, and um, the letter was intercepted by the FBI mail uh, intrusion program. So they had that letter before the assassination of Oswald that he was not just a benign person, but he was trying to go back to Russia and trying to get his wife to go back to Russia. So why that didn't raise flags? Well, you, you know, we know that it did raise flags, but they don't refuse to ad admit that to us. So there's anomalies like that. I'm really doing a deep dive into that particular anomaly because... Why did she find it in a cookbook? Uh, in the cookbook was the Walker note. Yeah. Okay, this was not that. Yeah, you're talking about the typed up letter that was on the desk that she said he handwritten it first and then typed it up or something. Right, right. Now, we don't know exactly where he hand wrote it because it was a Saturday morning when he typed it up and he hadn't been there the night before. So chances are he wrote that somewhere off the premises and brought that handwritten draft and typed it up. But here's the weird thing. And I'm like I say, I'm in a process of a major research on it. The typewriter itself, um, they didn't do a good job of examining that um, that letter from Oswald to prove definitively that it came from that typewriter. All they can say is that they can't disprove that it didn't, okay? So it's a it's a double negative, right? And in, War in Ruth's Warren Commission testimony, she talks about um, in October, middle of the month, uh, taking Oswald downtown to, to for some place he needed to go. And then she and Marina uh, drove to Weaver office machines where she wanted to get her Russian typewriter fixed, that she had some keys that were having problems. So she left it there on a Monday and picked it up on a Friday but we don't have anything that was ever typed in Russian. And if she had a Russian typewriter, don't you think that Oswald would have said, wow, this would be pretty cool. I could write this letter in Russian, right? And all, all in 63, all of the letters to Marina were handwritten. They were not um, written on a Russian typewriter. Now, wouldn't you think you've met this new person, you want to communicate with them, 
my Cyrillic characters might not be as good as I want them to be. So, wow, I'll use my Russian typewriter. What was the purpose of the Russian typewriter? Plus, we can't find any other documents that were written on the English typewriter. So th there's a lot, I mean, you don't think that that's a big deal about this stupid typewriter, but look at all the things I brought up that, that are very, very important about it. And it could lead us somewhere else. Well, um, another anomaly. With the Dallas police investigating Ruth Payne's house when she left to get groceries and they were just going all through the house, that's where a lot of the evidence started being found, the most incriminating stuff, at least. And not, if I'm not mistaken, that's where the backyard photographs were found as well, too. I know they were found in various different spots. There's multiple photos. But there was that was where one was found. I think the, they called it a reflex camera. Or something like that, but I'm pretty sure it was the Minox spy camera because Ruth Payne had picked it up and said it must have been Michael Payne's because he had one just like it, but apparently that one was broken. But you see the FBI telling one of the guys, don't write that down as a Minox spy camera, write that down as a light meter. And he's trying to get this guy to change his testimony. The guy is just saying, no, I'm going to stick with this. And I think, I don't know if he eventually changed it, but that's like corruption. That's like serious. You're swaying fact. You're trying to make it sound good so you can just wrap this investigation up, which is not what should have been done. Right. But see, there's even a mystery uh, or a discrepancy about whether that photo was found Friday afternoon in the search or Thursday or, or Saturday. I think it was found Friday and they just waited till Saturday. Well, yeah. Yeah. But they that's not the official version. The official version is that it came up on uh, a list on the Saturday. No, because I know. Well, I know the official version says that. But if you look at the testimony, um, when he's getting asked a uh, question, Oswald is um, that he mentions the photograph. And that was before the photograph was even recorded to be found or documented to be found. So he was already aware that there was a backyard photograph of Oswald. Right. But well, are you talking about when Oswald was questioned? I don't, yeah, it, during his, I don't know if it was the first interrogation or second. Well, and, and, well let's talk about the interrogations, okay? Mm -hmm. What what evidence and proof do we have that what they've written about what he said, he actually said? You got Hostie's note and Bookout's notes. Right. I mean, in, in uh, the only thing we know for sure is when he was in the hallway and he shouted out things to the reporters or at that little short press conference. That's the only thing that's absolutely provable. I don't care how many people write a report. The wording is so close the same, et cetera, about supposedly. There were notes. Oh, yeah, we have notes, right? Hostie and Fritz. All of a sudden, they have notes. And wow, Fritz's notes are really a lot like Bookout's report, okay? So the whole uh, Bart Camp has done a great job of bringing all the information together in one place that I hope a lot of people will start to dig in more and more and more because the idea of Oswald and the mo supposed motive for doing all of this was he wanted to be famous. He wanted to show the world who he was and go down in history. Well, then how come he kept saying he was innocent and no one's charged me with that? And what lone nut demands for legal counsel? Right. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a patsy. Why wasn't he saying, damn right I did it, and I'm glad I did it. Someone needed to do it, right? So um, another anomaly. Another, the, so the whole thing about what he supposedly said in interrogations, I think we can take with a grain of salt because a lot of it's very self-serving to the Dallas police. Why do you think they didn't bother to grab two of the stenographers they could have easily got in those headquarters or any recorders, tape recorders? Um, you could have easily just grabbed one and then recorded the whole interrogation, but they didn't. I mean, I think Dallas police is an area I've been looking into after I had Gil Jesus on because he was talking a lot about just multiple issues where they were steamrolling someone. And if you look at Henry Wade's conviction rates, I mean, a lot of those got overturned, but he sentenced people to the electric chair. And he says it in his interview at his press conference. He says, I'm not worried about the evidence. We got Oswald enough to pin him on this. And then that's when he says the free play for Cuba committee. And then Jack Ruby corrects him and says fair play for Cuba committee. But he was only concerned with here's the evidence that gets Oswald. That's what we're going to pin him on. I mean, I think Jesse Curry and all those other guys are involved in some sense, too. But also, 
I don't know, Curry was yelled at by J. Edgar Hoover um, for running his mouth, which I think is really important because people don't talk about that. And I didn't even really know about that until Craig Saccone had mentioned it to me. And I was looking at it. I was like, yeah, he was going to write a book. He didn't agree with the official party line, but he was in weird spots. He was on Air Force One when Johnson was being sworn in. You know, there's a lot to incriminate him, but I just think Dallas police had this conviction rate and that's all they cared about. Well, and uh, the conviction rate and also the image of Dallas, right? Because uh, they knew the climate in Dallas. Heck, most of those Dallas policemen didn't like Kennedy, okay? They, they wouldn't have been Democrats. So uh, this, and then the fact that Tippett got killed, I think it just infuriated them, right? That one of their own got killed uh, in this whole melee that was going down. Uh, but they they very much uh, tried to close ranks. And then there was always the hostility with the FBI because if a police department didn't play by the rules of Hoover, he would cut off their funding for training. So no, no more special training for Dallas, okay, after that happened for a little bit of time. Um, you know, Hostie got reassigned to the hinterlands, right? Uh, from um, from Dallas uh, and kind of used as a scapegoat there. So the interrogations need a lot more work. And like I say, Bart's done a stupendous service to us to bring all that together. But it doesn't make it true because these several different reports say it. What areas do you think more need improvements? Not improvements, but more research done from the research community. Um, Michael Payne. Michael Payne, we have spent so much time on Ruth Payne, myself included, okay? But about in the late 90s, I wrote a paper about the enigma of Michael Payne and how he had kind of been pushed to the side and we hadn't spent that much time with him. People get all hung up on the fact that he had this, he had so much money, he had this trust fund, et cetera, and that. And that's, that's just a, a you know, um, uh, um, shiny keys yeah it's just it's not important okay well it enabled him to live a life uh that um he he wanted to that he chose uh but he to me uh i've been spent the the last six months i resurrected uh research on michael payne that i had done and i started but i raised the flag many years ago no one picked up the gauntlet I went and did other things, and um, and now I'm going to talk. I'm I'm really digging into it, and I'm talking to people in uh, the Forbes family uh, that are his generation and above, because the the ones above are pretty old, but his generation and below, who knew him, and knew of him, and knew how the family reacted to him bringing the spotlight on the family. Because these moneyed families don't want that spotlight. They live in their own world, their own elite world, and they make connections with the, each other. They intermarry. They keep the wealth intact. Um, places like Nashan Island, which is the island owned by the Forbes uh, for over 100 years, um, is a place of respite. And so what I've been able to find out a lot about Michael Payne is understanding his personality and where he fit in the social structure of the Forbes and the Paines. You know, um, I I heard Paul Hoke say uh, in an interview in, in the last five years, when he went to school at Harvard, he started running into people who had three names, like, you know, George Lyman Payne, different names not him particularly, but just the three names, right? And he says, and they were buildings on campus, <laughs> like the Lyman Music Building or the Payne Science Building. He says, and I wasn't accustomed to that. That's not how I grew up. And, and I agree completely. These people are privileged. They have built-in connections based on family heritage. And you, with that comes a great responsibility of what you're supposed to accomplish. Well, Michael was too flighty to accomplish those things. 
And you know, one of these people told me, no one will go on record. What's interesting is each person I talk to in that family says, I'll tell you, but you can't attribute it to me. And you can't tell people you specifically talk to me. But here's one, two, three other people that I'll bet would talk to you. Okay. So they give me names so that I can go and, and talk to other people. But everybody is, I can neither confirm nor deny, right? If someone says, did you interview so-and-so? I'm not going to be able to say that specifically. So it's a very, it's a murky world in that sense that people want to talk, but they don't want it attributed to them. But just to give you an example, Nashan Island, the main house there, what they call the mansion, um, you walk in and there's a, a long hall and there's paintings on the walls and it's all the people, okay? All the people in history, back to Robert Treat Payne, signing the Declaration of Independence, um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who's a member of the family. Uh, through Emerson, you can go back to the Mayflower, okay? So you've got all these illustrious people who have done incredible things in politics, in religion, in science, uh, in literature. And you walk down there and you, you'd be hard pressed not to be feeling pretty humble by the time you got to the end of that hallway. And what am I going to do with my life? And there's great expectations that people in those families will do a lot with their life. But you get into this stream of Michael Payne and his father, George Lyman Payne, who were very um, left and liberal. And then you have Ruth Forbes Payne, who George Lyman married, and she's very much world peace. I just, can't we all just get along and let's just have world peace. The um, bombings at the end of World War II were devastating to her in her mind that humanity had done this. So you can see why Ruth Hyde Payne would fit into this relationship with Michael Payne. She's a Quaker. She's a peace activist. She said, can't we all just get along? If just Russian people and American people would talk, I'm sure everything would be okay, right? So you can kind of start to see how all of this starts to fit in. And um, what was he doing in 1963, going to Bircher meetings and ACLU meetings and uh, talking with uh, SMU students about Castro and trying to agitate dis discussions? Same kind of thing that Lee was doing, right? So that sounds like a provocateur. So was he working for some agency in doing those things to try to ferret information out? And so there's there's some interesting uh, philosophies here. And one person that I've talked to recently is even starting to um, study the concept that Michael, the Paines weren't watching Oswald. He was watching the paints. And it's it's a very interesting concept, something I hinted at about who was using who 30 years ago when I wrote my paper, um, but not to this extent. And so I'm very excited about his research and where he's going to go with this. Uh, and I think, well, as a matter of fact, today, this afternoon, he's giving a paper at the WECT conference. Uh, uh, so I, I I hope very much that he gets a lot of um, positive feedback from giving that paper and and going forward. I have to ask, why do you think Michael Payne wasn't questioned as much or interrogated as much as Ruth Payne was or any of the DeMorne Shields? Because he lied about his how much time he had spent with Oswald. So he he uh, that Sunday afternoon after Lee was killed. Um, a reporter from the local uh, television station came to the Payne house and the man interviewed Ruth for about 17 or 18 minutes, sitting on the couch in the living room and Michael for about eight or nine minutes. And at that time, that eight or nine minutes, Michael spouted this whole thing about what Oswald felt about um, the economy and how you live and uh, the, the use of the workers 
and uh, how you didn't pay them and how the profit in capitalism is evil. And, and that's what he focused on everything with Oswald. So in his interviews with the FBI and the Secret Service, he continued only talking about that. But he said, I want to talk to him a couple of times. Well, that was incorrect. He had, he had many occasions to have conversations with him. And Ruth says, I didn't talk politics with him much. I, Marina drone, you know, turned him out when he started talking politics. And so did Ruth. They had, they had other things that they were involved in uh, that, that they, they didn't have time for that in their minds. And so the Warren Commission comes along and they don't think he has that much information. Okay. I mean, you read those pages about the alleged rifle in the blanket. I mean, it almost hurts how they're trying to um, lead him down a path that that blanket had the rifle in it. And did he know? I mean, he was doing gymnastics in the garage, but he, you know, jumping over back and forth over that while he used his buzz saw and his handsaw. But, but no, he, he never, never did. Um, and he lied about seeing the picture. Yeah, Lee showed it to him, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, in April, when the first time he met him, or the first time that we know that he met him, okay? So there's a lot on Michael, and I'm really having fun doing this. But, you know, I just came off of a year and a half on Buell Frazier, and my article on it was just published in the Dealey Plaza Echo in their autumn 2023, and it's a huge article. Uh, and I, I went from soup to nuts on it with him. And uh, it's based on one-on-one -on -one interviews with him in the spring of this year, uh, about seven or eight hours of interviews with him. So uh, it's... Uh, I'm going to end up reading it, but I got to ask Curtin Rod's story. Curtin Rod's story, more anomalies, okay? Because the only two people who saw Curtin Rod's were he and his sister, Lenny Mae Randall, okay? Now, Lenny Mae Randall would do anything for her brother, okay? She brought him from Huntsville, Texas, convinced him to come up and stay with her and her husband and get a job, go to school so that he could live on his own, et cetera. Well, in Huntsville, he was this close to joining the Dixie Mafia, okay? So, which was the biggest business in Huntsville at the time. And Huntsville is the prison capital of Texas, okay? It's where the executions take place, huge prison economy in the city, et cetera. So I talked to high school, you know, classmates that went to school with him, uh, got very interesting perspective on, on his life there. Um, and he had a tough life, but his sister snatched him out of there just in the nick of the time to get him to come up there to Irving, okay? It was either go south to Houston and become a part of that mafia or go north, okay? And he didn't know what he was going to get to when he went north. <clears throat> so it's um, the curtain rods back to that is to say that um, – There's so many discrepancies in the story of the curtain rods about whether they really were there or not. But what the thing that is the hardest for me to deal with is that they never varied on the length. Okay, they gave a length of the package that couldn't possibly hold the rifle. Okay, so if they made up the curtain rod story why wouldn't they just make it the 34 inches that they needed? Why keep it at 24 to 28? And then the Warren Commission says, well, they were just wrong about, they were right about seeing it. Well, the rifle was 38 inches. 38, not 34? No, it was 38, yeah, because they made the paper bag 36 and it was too short. Okay, so to me, why, why lie about one thing and not the other? Why not nail them to the cross? by telling them there was a bag and it was big enough to hold the rifle. Okay. That that's such a that's such a conflict in what he even to this day 
we'll, we'll, we'll go to his death saying, okay, what the, the parts that's hard is seeing Oswald after the assassination coming down the street, okay? Because that was a trickle down that came years later. And then once he did his book was the new drip, drip, drip of information that he saw the man with a rifle put it into the car on that Elm Street extension, that little road that goes right in front of the depository. Did he ever change his statements throughout the years? He added to them. Okay. So do I mean, did he ever change from the official narrative or anything, like have a different sign? Oh, Oswald didn't do it. Like Clint Hill, new book is about he never saw a back wound or anything like that in the back of Kennedy's head, even though all the other books all talked about a whole scene like it's golf ball or orange shaped in the back of Kennedy's head. Yeah. No, he hasn't changed that basic story about the curtain rods. Okay. Um, the other part of the curtain rod story that's hard to accept is that Lenny May went down the street to the pain house and talked to those officers about seeing Oswald that morning and um, that he had a package, a suspicious package, not just a package, but a suspicious package. I don't know what a suspicious package would look like, but that is not in Lenny May's character at all to have overtly inserted herself into that scenario. So that's another part of the curtain rod story that doesn't make sense. Okay. But it's like, um, uh, why, why there isn't a simple answer to the curtain rod story, but even on this Nat Geo, uh, special that just came out one day in America for the, uh, three-part series uh he's on there and he says again that it was um he does the curtain rods and he does the um i saw him at the side of the building afterwards but he doesn't talk about the man with the rifle that he encountered on the elm street extension which is rather interesting that he wouldn't do that on camera first i've ever heard of it okay yeah i guess i mean after 60 years you have to start kind of looking at like what would be things that we can move forward besides just pushing it into the public's perspective more i mean obviously everything's going to trend around the anniversary but again give it what a couple weeks or a month and is it just going to be the same people that are going to be researching it like they have been doing for so long like it's it's difficult i see a lot of it trending now which i think is okay but i want to keep that momentum up and you know, it goes back to what I asked before about what do you think Kennedy or what do you think people should remember about JFK more than just his assassination? But we lost a president that probably could have done great things for this country, at least in my perspective. I think there's another a number of policies, right, that um, were diverted, stopped or changed um, after the assassination. Um, there's an, another documentary that's just come out now on Netflix is uh, The Lady Bird Diaries. And she started writing a diary on November 22nd. And so she also spoke her diary into a tape recorder. So the show is her speaking, which is in itself pretty great because it's not an interpretation. If someone else was reading her diary, they would put an inflection on certain words as they were reading it. She's reading it herself. So it's her own inflection. So you know where something is important to her and how she's feeling about the situation. Uh, so nothing big and new about the assassination, but it's interesting to see her um, interaction with her husband on policy uh, and her recommendations in writing to him uh, on what she thinks he should or shouldn't be doing. And she was no little um, wallflower. She was as strong in her opinions as he was. And I think it was excellently, just exceptionally well done um, although I'm sure it's cherry picked, but it still is very, very good to see an insight into this relationship and another influence on Johnson uh, that we may not have been as fully aware of before. So I think those type of documentaries are really good to see. Well, what what were your thoughts on the Nat Geo one? You mentioned a thing about Bill Buell Frazier, but what? Well, they had about seven or eight people, living witnesses that are that are still there, that are still alive. And so they were on camera 
and they're very stoic and uh, sincere, uh, but they aren't giving us anything new. Okay. And it was their biggest assistance was a sixth floor museum. So the minute you see that, you know what that means. It's going to be lone gunman, et cetera. And at the end, they, you know, the black screen and lone, lone assassin of President Kennedy and, and then a lone assassin of uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. So I was pretty disgusted with it. I mean, they can colorize film all they want, but you know, that, that that's not what I need. I'd like to have the original Alton's photo of the depository front entrance and the the Wigman film so that we can really decipher everybody that's on that front stoop and what's going on there. But you can't do it from, you know, 20, gen, 20 generation uh, copies of the original film or photograph. Uh, and that's that stuff we don't have access to. And the sixth floor has bought up the rights to so many of the films and photographs. Yeah, they claimed the Zapruder film, but Baylor University was like, we will sue them because they tried to sue Randy for using the um, Zapruder film for the searchers film that he had. And Baylor University stepped up and protected him on that one. But you can't claim rights to the Zapruder film because it's public domain. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they so they they have uh, the Sixth Floor Museum has good financial backing and good legal advice uh, and and that uh, so that they, they they are well protected, but they um, I mean I, I would certainly never leave any of my materials to them. I'd leave it to Baylor. Well, a lot of people that donate materials donate to the archives or Sixth Floor or something like that, and. It's just to me, I don't know. From what I've heard from researchers, it's not a good place to store your stuff. You would think it'd go to the public, but it never does. It ends up some of the stuff gets reclassified, and next thing you know, you don't have access to that material. <laughs> or the way it's filed. You know, if you misfile something, it's as good as lost. Right? So when you think of since 94 or something, the releases that have been coming out, 30 years of releases of thousands of pages of documents. So you have a document that was created in on March 1st, 1964, and it had tons of black marks on it, redactions, right? Then in 97, they released another version of it and maybe 10 of the redactions were uncovered. So then that goes into the file. Do you think it goes back and gets filed by where that first one is from? No. It goes into a numer you know, in a numerical order, chronological of when it came into the record. Then three years later, another version comes out. Or they found a copy in someone's files, because there's all the CCs on these things that we try to go after. And uh, and we're counting spaces trying to figure out what a name might fit in there for who we think it might be that they're referring to, based on the typewriters of the time, right? And then another five years and you get another company. So you end up on a four page letter. You end up with a file this thick <laughs> because you have all these different versions, but they're not all filed together. You've got to know when it got released. You've got to go find it. Everything's not digitized, um, especially HSCA stuff is not digitized. So you have people like uh, Malcolm Blunt who went and parked there for three and four months, rented an apartment, and went in every day and just did serendipity. I want file folder number, da-da-da, and the file box. And they would bring that box to him. He'd go through it, make copies, scan, whatever he did. And that was um, whenever he found something on George, the sweetheart would send something to me. You, you might have this or you might not, you know. And, uh, you know, bless him. He was just a big help to me. Uh, always it meant I was always in his mind somehow uh, to, to help me with my research. And I, I, I really appreciate that. Well, Nancy, I appreciate you giving me all the time you have to be able to talk not only on this show, but also previous episodes as well, too. I always appreciate our chats. Um, is there a place where people can find your links? Uh, Dealey Plaza Echo uh, is, uh, is, uh, is one. I'll send you a link for that. So you, you can include that. Uh, they have my Buell Frazier article. I also wrote a three-page article that um, was about what I think we should be doing at the anniversary and, and why. 
and it's about the policies, et cetera. And it's at the end of it, I'm challenging everybody in, in, in uh, the research to find someone under 40 and be a mentor to them, okay? And help them maneuver the way into the research and help get them passionate about it. And if each of us would do that, okay, rather than being concerned about, oh, this is my research and I don't want to share it. I don't want anyone to know until I can publish my book or whatever, right? Um, it, I think it would help. And I taught, you've helped me understand how a younger generation looks at the historical perspective and what it means to them and how it affects their life. And so I think I incorporated some of that in. So I will send you a copy of both of those articles I mentioned so that you can you can read them because I, I would love your opinion on them because you've talked to so many people. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the time again. Nancy, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.